On April 13th, Sotheby's photographs held an auction in New York. We had a full week of exhibition prior to the auction, and as usual, it was great to talk to people in the galleries and to show great photographs to collectors. I started thinking about how much we talk about prints and the auction world in general, but how little of this information makes it into the public sphere. So I thought the best way to remedy the situation was to host an informal post-sale conversation with my colleague Emily Bierman so that we could talk about how we place estimates on photographs, our own personal photo obsessions, and what we think were missed opportunities in the auction. Stick around for some inside baseball about the photographs market from two people in the know. This is The Expert Eye. We didn't really get a chance to do um, an actual wrap-up. I mean, we did within our department, but we didn't really get to do it on here, a wrap-up of the David Arrington sale that we did, which was called A Grand Vision, the David H. Arrington Collection of Ansel Adams Photographs. And it was the second sale that we did um, within a year and a few months of David's collection. And it was, by, by any metric, a fantastic success. This particular sale... I thought was interesting because it included so many prints that were not very well known. And for for the 100 prints that we were offering, only two went unsold. And the two that went unsold, I feel like I kind of have to take responsibility for those. (laughs) One was of a cemetery. And... (laughs) Oh, wait, you picked... I definitely take responsibility for the other one, for the snag. Yeah. A snag is like a nicer word for a burned out stump, which is what it was. (laughs) And nobody... People went crazy for the snag the first time. Yeah. This is just a different snag and a different orientation. So therein lies the excitement of every auction, not knowing if a trend is going to continue. Right. Uh, who knows whether a snag is going to be popular the second time around. So those two didn't go unsold, but it was really fantastic that, I mean, all of the others found new homes, but practically white glove um, should be considered um, a proverbial white glove. So hundred percent sold. And by any, by any metric, um, just a, a brilliant, a brilliant success for the for the market in general were you worried about putting so many adams prints on the market at one time you we talked about this at length and so just um a, a little bit of context uh amy you've been working with and thinking about David Arrington's collection for quite some time. And so we had the opportunity to go through a couple of different iterations as to what we thought was going to be the best path forward and ended up, at least with the first season, with, what, 123 lots mm-hmm. and definitely got that question from not not a small number, not a few people, as to whether or not we were going to be putting too much on the market at once and, and was that where we're going to kill the market, essentially. And I think we both felt really strongly that if you were ever going to do it, it was going to be with a collection like this. 
which was really A to Z, something for everyone, the earliest, rarest examples we've never seen before, through to iconic works, affordable works, works that are a stretch because they're super early, murals, a little bit of everything. And I personally had felt that, so I, I lived through in 2010, the sale of the Polaroid Corporation's collection, um, which went through a bankruptcy and Sotheby's was honored to be able to hold that sale. And that was a monumental, massive auction not just in the number of lots, um, but also in the variety of photographers that were offered. But within the sale, there were, I think, if you broke down the lots, something like 400 or so Ansel Adams photographs. And that was a market-defining auction, set a new world record for Ansel Adams, and just totally rabid, rabid bidding. So making it through close to around 400 Ansel Adams photographs, 123 lots seems very achievable. Uh, and we've seen in other contexts that single artists um, telling a story really can, can work. Um, and luckily, I think we were right. I like how you said that you lived through the Polaroid collection <laughs> because I think you were responsible for a fair amount of cataloging for that. So it must have yeah. seemed like a lot. That was, when I think about fun and also formative and daunting experiences, that was and will forever be one of the most important and best options that I ever had the opportunity to work on because it really was like seven, six or seven months of working seven days a week, just grinding through, but learning constantly and seeing, um, seeing just like the full breadth of what Ansel Adams had to offer. So yes, I feel incredibly lucky, but definitely uh, survived it as well. <laughs> well, I, I think that one of the reasons why these sales were so successful is because there was such a wide range of works and things that were really rare, if not unique, um, that you will not see again. And people are so used to seeing the same images over and over and over again. And then when you get to see some of those really early prints that he made of Grand Canyon or um, of Yosemite, of course, that are just jewels, they're just tiny little wonderful pieces that are just something that's very, very different from what people have in their heads. Yeah, the scale is really surprising um, for a lot of people and certainly was for me as well. The idea that we are used to going into a collector's home or even going into a museum and seeing an Ansel Adams photograph that's about 15 by 19 inches. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you see a mural-sized print, so maybe they're 30 by 40 inches. But here you had works that were, what, like three by four? Three by four, yeah all the way to 90, 100 inches, um, just like the huge just array of print format and that he was experimenting with. And like every single photograph is done masterfully, is rendered masterfully. Like he really was a master of the darkroom, as mm -hmm. they said, and even when he wasn't in the darkroom and was um, printing commercially. Well, 
I wonder if the reason why partially why this sale did as well as it did was because of the context within a single owner sale and the sort of marketing that goes around that. I mean, David is a very charismatic person who participated with us in some marketing ideas, like putting together that video um, and really wanted to be part of that and really drew people into the story about why he collected and his love for the photographer. And people love to buy something that was part of a collection that was created with care and love for a photographer's work. And that like somehow connects them to that collection as well. I think that had something to do with it. I think that got us excited as well. The idea that so David Arrington is alive and well, young, uh, just passionate, single-minded focus for Ansel Adams because he himself wanted to be a photographer and still does have a dark room in his house. These little details that connect you as the specialist or you as the collector with with that collector, with his story, I think are so meaningful. And you kind of see why he went all out on Ansel Adams. And because it's one person's vision and because he said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm setting out to build the best Ansel Adams collection that I possibly can. I only want access and I only want to be shown and I only want to possibly acquire the best possible prints of any of these given images. And in some instances, I want to acquire and I want to know that I can chart the history of an image. And think about the fact that he has or had all of these different printings of Moonrise over Hernandez. So the most well-known iconic image within probably the history of 20th century American photography. And David set out to not only have the earliest known print, but then to have maybe another early print, the the second or the third print, um, and then to have a print from the 50s or 60s, to have an oversized print. So you really get to see within one collection, not only the evolution of that collector's vision, but the evolution of the photographer. And that that's so much a part of that storytelling. And mm-hmm. yes, David was very much part of it. And we we're so lucky to get to have him on video. You're right. He's totally charismatic. Um, you just kind of want to sit down and have a beer with him and chat about photography or step into his darkroom. Mm-hmm. And that definitely uh, is part of the storytelling that we get to do and or what our colleagues are really good at and does drive people to be interested. Um, Maybe I can be that. Right. Yeah. I think in a lot of ways it made the marketing a little bit easier because there is this great story around why he started collecting and being so connected to Adam's story And then, you know, this path that he went on to acquire all of these prints and to have one of everything, which, of course, no one, it would take you a very long time with Adams to do. But he was fortunate enough to purchase a good amount from um, Adams' family. So he was able to get these super rare images that we will never see again. I mean, it's amazing. So that was really, really fun. 
So just a little bit of, I guess, inside baseball on the the estimating for these sales, because we went back and forth quite a bit on some of these prints, partially because they were so rare that there were there wasn't a lot of market history to go on for a lot of them. Um, and there had certainly been early examples of Adam's prints that have come up, but they were very few and far between and not in this particular context. So I think context really plays a big role with being within the single owner sales. So when we're coming up for these, the, the strategies around the setting of estimates, it was really difficult. I, yeah. I, I found it very challenging and it was really gratifying to see these prints sell so well um, and exceed expectations in a lot of ways um, that we just frankly didn't know just the depth of an interest in these earlier prints and where that would go um, and tried to, I mean, people look for us, look to us for guidance on these estimates, right? Based on what we know about the market. And so I feel like we placed them very reasonably, but um, seeing them just, go for double or triple the estimates that we'd placed was amazing to me. Um, You're totally right. People look to us for guidance on estimates and that's why we're gainfully employed because we <laughs> must have a semblance of knowing what we're doing. But in any given uh, estimating strategy session, there's it's, it's somewhat subjective. You have the raw data with a standard um, later print or with an addition where you know where it's sold, where it should sell in the future within, within a range. These photographs, many of them were first time on the market, probably only time ever to be on the market. Maybe they exist in a handful of museum collections, maybe. Mm -hmm. And so really then not only becomes, well, how do they fit in to the other market examples for the few, few early prints that have come up, but how do they fit in to our understanding of Adam's as a photographer and, and honestly like how much do you like it so much right. of it is subjective of like right. do you think it's a good composition well that's like what that i was snag? gonna say like we picked one that we really liked that ski tracks image for the reverse mm -hmm. of the um printed catalog yeah. because it was so graphic because it was just super eye-catching we liked it and you know and i think that may have had something to do with maybe pushing the estimate up and increment higher than we may have done if we didn't like the image i mean part of it is just like do we think that this is something that other people are going to also like and like you said hopefully we know at this point <laughs> otherwise we shouldn't have the jobs that we have <laughs> well a little inside information we as a team, do work together on these estimates and have what we affectionately call estimate snackdowns. <laughs> and invariably, we are very close um, most of the time. But every once in a while, Amy, you and I will be like a world apart. And then it's fascinating like, to see who was right. Right. A shocking distance apart sometimes. Like, how could you be, how could you think this? What are you thinking? <laughs> it's the worst actually 
All right, so let's move on to the April sale. So April 13th, just last week, it feels like a year ago. We had a little under 200 lots, and all of those require a fair amount of research on them. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult while you're still in the process of cataloging and gathering up information for everything. And then at the same time, to be reaching out to potential buyers, to, to me anyway, it's, but we don't, I mean, it's not for every lot, obviously, that takes a lot of research, but it's a lot of them that do. It's a lot of them that do. Yeah, definitely. Um, and this is kind of just auction 101, but the same, the same attention to detail, the same level of connoisseurship, the same checking of condition, um, vetting the provenance, making sure your estimate is right, applies if something is valued at $500 to $1,000 or $500,000 to a $1 million. So what we do doesn't materially change depending on the value. The stakes are so much higher when you're talking about something that is at a higher value point. Uh, But every single photograph needs to be be treated be treated equally we i think all gravitate towards ones that are our favorites for whatever reason be it because it's rare because it is at some ballpark breaking value point or just because it's an image that sticks in your mind that you've Uh seen in auction catalogs or you've seen in the museum show and never thought you'd have the opportunity to handle in this context. And there were certainly, um, for me, there are definitely a couple of pieces that fit into that latter um, category this this season. And those are always the ones that I end up becoming a little fanatical about. Well, we all have our little pet pet photographs every season for sure. Even if, I mean, some of them, like you said, are really high value works that we're just really attached to. And then sometimes they're just like little quirky things that just capture our attention for one reason or another. But um, we had a really special photograph um, by Aikens this season that you did a lot of research on um, and brought that piece in. I was obsessed. Like, full stop. (laughs) I was absolutely obsessed with this Thomas Aikens photograph. And it's um, a photograph of some young men boxing in the nude alfresco um yeah. so, <laughs> so it was probably something that Aikens used for a figure study for one of his paintings or for what do you think what what do you think he would have used that for so the I mean he picks up a camera influenced by another one of your podcast subjects um I believe uh Moybridge yeah you did one on Moybridge he picks up a camera kind of um, inspired by having um, worked with him and come across my bridge, uh, sees the possibilities for photography um, as a teaching tool, photography on its own, but also as a teaching tool, and also encourages his students to pick up photography to to um, to focus on the the human form. So we've got this photograph of these 
yes, they're all nude, um, but these male boxers kind of ringed by these men who are sitting in the grass. And it's both got staging elements to it because it's so perfect. Those men that are sitting there watching are just so perfect. But you also have the great semblance of chance because they're definitely sparring. You can see a little bit of movement um, in one of the one of the sitters, um, one of the boxing sitters. And so you have the sun um, shining on on their bodies, so you can really get a sense of their anatomy and musculature, which would be very helpful as you're thinking through how to paint a paint a human, paint a, a figure. Um, but also, honestly, it's just a really fun, happy image. Um, I so when we think about Aikens, when we think about Thomas Aikens, I almost always, even as someone who works with photography, only ever really think about painting uh, because that's what we see the most in museum shows, although there have been some great shows devoted to photography. And that's the limited output that we see coming to the auction market. There have been like itty bitty little, little auction records, um, huge records, but just only a very, very small fraction in comparison um, to painting of his photographs coming up. And most of what we have seen or most of what we've maybe had access to valuing um, on an appraisal have been these figure studies uh, that don't really show movement um, or might be family studies. They aren't all that inspiring. And then along comes this photograph, um, which we've been aware of for quite some time. And its condition is perfect. Its tones are super rich and saturated. It's an albumin print with just like the most beautiful, deep sort of, I want to say like an auburn, like really beautiful, deep auburn tones. Uh, and packs a total punch. And it was framed, um, the consigner had it in this like, totally awesome three-dimensional frame, which got a lot of attention when it was on exhibition. It's true. People and seem to be like really obsessed people with love frame. frame. Um, <laughs> that's, that's for a whole nother podcast, um, collectors and their frames. Uh, but the photograph had an awesome history and it had originally, um, well, I mean, it's early, early history was with Aikens, but its auction market history was, it was acquired in 1977 from Sotheby's, not Sotheby's, but Sotheby Park and a little sale of I think around 20 or 21 lots of Aiken's photographs from Olympia Galleries. And it was, I think, one of the more it had the more movement. Um, some of them were really very static um, figure studies. Uh, there were other uh, other photographs of sitters outside. Um, but if I were looking at the catalog, I too probably would have happened upon this um, and thought that that was a real winner. Amazingly enough, the entire sale was not 100% sold. Uh, but 1977 is the beginning of the photography market, if you can even call it that at that point. And it's about 70 or 77% sold. Um, this photograph stays in its same collection for... Oh, wait, hold on. We have to say that it sold 
for $4,250. But I looked it up in the inflation calculator. That is twenty over $20,000 today. Okay, so that is a lot of money. A lot of money. That would be a lot of money. Um, To give you context, I was trying to find little sound bites about the sale, and I was researching it in the New York Times and found the auction coverage, and a new world record was set for any any photograph um, with a photograph in the sale when it sold for $11,000, which is just tells you how far how far we've come. Um, other photographs from the sale were acquired and have now gone into museum collections. Um, Sam Wagstaff's photographs um, went to the Getty, and I think there are one or two that are at the Fog at Harvard. Um, where all the other ones are, I don't know. If you want to contact us, let us know. I think that that print really part of the reason why it did so well is because it had really broad appeal mm-hmm. and we find some of that the strongest bidding when you can when you have a piece that you're getting more people involved with the bidding itself so the more bidders that you have the higher the result usually in the end and this got a lot of attention i mean there yeah, were it, only- it was acquired by a just absolutely phenomenal collector but not a collector of 19th century. And that always excites me when we can introduce someone who knows really everything possible about what they collect into something something new. And it's just absolutely taken by either the imagery, by the story, um, by learning about a new artist. Um, so it's not a, it's not that it was a, collector who's new to photography, but totally new to the idea of collecting 19th century. And that, I, I like that takeaway like, for us. To just buy what you like or inspired yeah. by rather than being very binary about, oh, this fits within the collection I have mm-hmm. already. Um, those are the best kind of collectors to me. Yeah. What were some of your takeaways um, from the season? Um, well, I, I got really obsessed with that Deanna Arbus photograph of the girl with the cigar in Washington Square Park. Um, It's an early print. It's stamped and signed on the reverse by her daughter. It's from 1965. By early print, you mean it was lifetime, right? It's a lifetime print, but not signed, but it's signed by her daughter on the reverse. And it's from 1965. And it's at this point where her work really changes. Um, She changes her camera and that has a lot to do with it but she experiences this sort of fear I think about how she's going to move forward and how to work with people and get get the images that she wants because she's changing cameras and that's changing the way that she works and she talks about going into Washington Square Park and wandering around these areas that are sort of these people um, have camped out in certain areas. So there's the winos in one area and there's the lesbians in another area and the bohemians over here. And she's walking through and interacting with all these people. And it's really scary to her to walk up to somebody and ask them for a photograph. And I think it's something that everybody who's learning about photography and interested in portraiture is something that you experience and how to navigate those situations. 
Um, and this is from one of those times that she went out and, and tried to take pictures of people in the park. And this woman isn't even really looking at her. She's sort of looking to the side, but there's something very haunting about her. And I just found it a really charming picture. So we put a pre-sale estimate of 30, 30 to 50,000 on it. And it ended up selling for a little over 60,000. And we showed it to a lot of people. I got a lot of interest in this print. I think not only because it's an early print, but it never comes up. An early print, never. I mean, I think the last time it was in the 90s. That this, we saw. this print, right. So it yeah, was this inspired by one. our consigners. At yeah. yeah, so it's really, it was a cool thing to have. And going back to what I said earlier, I think that we had a lot of people looking at it. And so I knew that it was going to probably do well in the end. So I, I was happy to see that. Yeah. Did we say how much the male new boxers made? The Aiken? The male new boxers sold. Okay, so first pre-sale estimate was thirty thousand to fifty thousand dollars. And it ended up selling for three hundred twenty-seven thousand six hundred dollars, which is amazing. I mean a new record and change. What's really fun is sitting in the office, we're all looking at our computers, following along with the auction, and then another bid comes in, and then you hear this woo-hoo from across the room, and then another bid comes in, and someone else is like, whoa! Like, <laughs> it's kind of well, fun. I was, uh, I was remote that day, and I was watching it both on my screen and on my phone, and taking lots of little snapshots to make sure that I was not imagining anything and would be able to go back and document all of those little bits that come in. But it was so exciting. Were there any prints that you thought were going to do well, but just didn't like anything that you liked that didn't sell no. that you can't really figure um, out why? So I always, I call those miss, missed opportunities <laughs> because they really are. And every season there are, you know what? The snag that didn't sell in David Arrington's collection, I still consider that a missed opportunity. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm irrationally uh, emotional about these. It's because um, you anything... wanted to put it in the auction. And... <laughs> that is true. Um, anything this season uh, that didn't sell. You know what? Um, I don't. We don't tend to, actually. It's interesting. We don't tend to spend a lot of time dwelling on works that don't sell at auction, uh, but because you always just want to champion your successes. I, uh, yes, I think there are a couple. Uh, I would say one of our research favorites was the Robert Frank of the Peak Show. Uh, so this was a photograph that came in as part of a larger consignment um, and was off the bat um, our colleague Hermione Sharp, who's now uh, in London, she was working with the consigner and I said, we have to have this photograph. This is just the coolest thing because it's a Robert Frank photograph that you've not seen before, which is ultimately should be a red flag, but it's a Robert Frank image that's not the same Hoboken or Charleston. Right. Right. It's something new. Right. And it came in and it was beautiful print and off from the beginning, it honestly was a research project 
gone wrong because on the back of the photograph, it was annotated in some unknown hand, Detroit, which also was on the map. And immediately we think, this is not Detroit. Like, this doesn't look like any of the Detroit images. But maybe it's one of the cities, one of, like, the coastal cities. And so I was I was tooling around on the National Gallery's website and found there's an image titled, Untitled Peep Show, that they attributed to being Los Angeles. And I thought, okay, that sounds plausible. I mean, he definitely would have been, I mean, he was in LA, that's all documented. So maybe it's Los Angeles. And I posted it on Instagram as like a little sneak peek of what's coming up this season. And a independent um, auction, previous auction house uh, specialist and Robert Frank Scholar reached out and said, I think I know where that was first illustrated. And I don't think it's Los Angeles. So go down a, some more research, figure out that we think it was in the, what, December 1961 issue of Show Magazine, which I'd also never heard of before. And it's, I mean, looks like a great magazine. I would love to find a The design is so cool from those magazines at the time. I mean, the graphics are really, really cool. Absolutely. Um, we uh, order the magazine, um, rush delivery, find out that indeed it is in the December 1961 issue, and it is on New York. It's on what happened to 42nd Street. So we now have, it's not Detroit, it's not Los Angeles, it's New York. And that is, and, and we're selling our sale. It is the best example of how the photo history is constantly evolving. Photo scholarship is you're as good as what you've seen before and what your community has seen and will help you with. And in the end, I just thought it was an awesome, amazing image. I mean, someone else taught us what the machines were that the mm-hmm. bystander in the peep show was looking at. It was just so cool. And then it didn't sell. So all of that work and then it didn't sell. And Honestly, that just sometimes happens. Uh, we get, I, I feel personally, I get very invested in the story and in the research behind certain photographs. And that has nothing to do with whether or not they're going to have good market um, potential or saleability. Um, sometimes it, it works out, sometimes it doesn't. Um, but I think in general, it was not just this photograph. Um, although that is a comedic string of events. Uh, it was more that the Robert Frank market in general is a little harder to predict these days. Um, certain images seem like they're going to trend really well, the icons. Uh, and there were maybe not this past season, but the season before, some really great results. And then there were a number of really wonderful images across all the houses, all the auction houses this season. Um, we had the US 285, uh, the road. Um, there was the, I don't think there was a trolley, but there was a print of the of Hoboken. Of mm-hmm. Right, the parade, yeah. Um, and amongst many other great 
uh, Frank Images, and it just didn't feel like there was a depth of, of bidding there. And I, I'm not sure what we would attribute that to, uh, because it's just, I mean, for the latter part, mid, mid-century to the latter part of the 20th century, uh, there's probably few American photographers, or few photographers, sorry, who are photographing in America, who have a greater long-term influence. Um, but it just always comes down to what people are looking for at a given at a given moment. Um, I mean, I talked to one collector who noted that they were all later prints. So for the most part, these were not early prints. But you know what? It's really hard to find early prints because he wasn't printing for fine art right. purposes right. in the 50s. Uh, and what you're used to seeing on the market and what has set um, some of the biggest market benchmarks for Frank has been probably 1970s prints. Sure. So it just could be that... Um, I mean, do you think that people are just sort of burnout on Frank? I mean, there's a lot of Frank that's been on the market over the last five years. That's I mean, there's no, there's no lack of a Frank Prince. I don't know. That's like, true. I just think, like you said, it's it's not sometimes super helpful to think about all the prints that didn't sell. But on the other hand, you know, this does make me think about larger trends and whether or not people are just not feeling Frankie right now. They're not feeling Frankie. Feel, they're not feeling Frankie. I don't know. I don't think it's that they're not feeling Frankie, uh, which is, is this now what we're going to go with. Um, the photography is a medium of multiples. And so with very few exceptions I'm guessing the peep show is one of them but with very few exceptions there are going to be more than a handful of other known prints that exist right right and many opportunities for people to have either have added the photographs to their collection or to find them and you do wonder if well do the people who, the collectors who have been seeking out certain Robert Frank icons, maybe they already have those. Right, right. And so in order to maintain in a market for certain, for certain artists or for a certain area, you need new collectors. And maybe the new collectors, which there are many new collectors in our field, given that in any given season, we see between what, like 30 and 45% new bidders and buyers. But those people need to want that artist or need to want that image. And it, we're sort of in a, in a period, I think um, someone emailed us about it. We're in a period of re-education. So educating a, a new generation of collectors as to not what they should like, but what they can like, what exists out there, what is the history of photography and what's important. And what's available, I guess. Well, yes. I mean, I was really shocked, not shocked, but disappointed that that Julia Margaret Cameron didn't sell. Maybe yeah. it's, you know, it's called the Holy Family. It's 
had beautiful tonality and it was a dedication print to the author Gustave Doré. And I thought this is just a really great example for, you know, a very reasonable estimate. It was 20 to 30,000, but maybe it was too romantic and people are just a little feeling a little bit more cynical right now. Maybe it's just not the taste People um, are definitely more cynical now. That that's definitely true. Right. Um, but you you bring up my favorite topic, which is 19th century photography, and <laughs> I am diehard, like, will live live breathe and bleed for great 19th century photography. But it is not necessarily the easiest part of the market, and I do agree with you that the Cameron was a very romantic image and romanticism and pictorialism are not ne- have not necessarily been kind of quote unquote on trend. No, not at all. I also think that the, the Cameron, so that had an interesting, um, it's had a great early history as you noted, um, but it also had an interesting auction history in that it was acquired from um one of the early uh, Sotheby's sales, uh, I can't remember if it was the one in 2002, um, of the from Andre Jean's collection. And so you've got great ownership history. It was good enough for Jean. I feel like it's good enough for me. And <laughs> I'm going to make a, a t-shirt that says that. What would Jean good do? Enough, good enough for Jean and it's good enough for me. Totally. Or what would, um, what would Jean do? You would have to um, you'd have to w- know um, about you'd have to know about his importance within the within the field for that to be meaningful, and you'd have to know about how those early auctions were just chock full of the most incredible nineteenth um, and early twentieth century photographs to get that context. Um, I have been exhibited. And two major exhibitions as well as part of his exhibition. I mean, or part of his collection. Yeah, that's true. Um, I mean, for for 19th century, uh, that is the part of photography where I think you do. Um, you are best served, as with all photography, you're best served being in front of the photograph understanding the object itself um, and seeing the tonalities, which can be hard to get across just looking at a JPEG. Um, that said, with, with albumin prints, um, like they change color depending upon what light you have on it. So I remember looking in our exhibition and thinking, well, that doesn't look quite like what I thought it looked like in the natural light. And that doesn't look like what I thought it looked like when we were cataloging it. And if it has that much variability, obviously it's going to be more difficult for someone to understand in the abstract than a perfectly crisp black and white gelatin silver print made in the 1970s or 1980s or something made just just yesterday. Um, And we uh, we as a team um, will continue to take chances offering interesting photographs by the full range of photographers from the whole history of the medium. Really think that that is important to the to the health of, of the market as well as to that 
education. There is an edu- what you're doing here, Amy, and having a having a podcast is you're having a lot of fun, but also it's all about education and having only offering works because only offering photographs because we thought that they were going to be an easy sell um, would be really boring. I mean, it It'd probably would make the job boring. really easy, but it'd be really, really boring. I mean, we've just named several prints that weren't necessarily easy sells, but we took a chance on anyway. Um, you know about my personal obsession with Stephen Arnold. I keep yeah. taking these prints in. They'd never sell for very much, but I really think that Stephen Arnold is a photographer that people should be paying attention to and Absolutely. is somebody that I'm very inspired by and I'm going to keep trying. <laughs> He's championing. And that's a yeah. big responsibility that I think uh, that is not commonly understood about what it's like to work at auction. Yes, we are the intermediary, willing seller, willing buyer. We're the glue that makes it all happen. But it's not just a machine. It is also a responsibility to the to the medium, to the market, um, and to those artists to be putting forward great examples and not just the same thing over and over and over again um, that everyone's already bought. So right. the opportunity to to showcase uh, Arnold's work, I think, is important. And right. I, I love that you love it. <laughs> well, I will be placing uh, links to to his uh, foundation on the Expert Eye blog, as well as results for our April sale and for the Ansel Adams sale that we did in February from the collection of David H. Arrington. So, Emily, thank you so much for taking time on your Sunday uh, relaxation day to wrap up the sales. And then, um, you know, once I hit pause on recording we can talk about all the stuff that we can't talk about on the podcast so amazing thank you thanks for listening to this very special post-sale wrap-up recorded on april 17th 2022 over zoom and edited by yvonne Soro in bedsty brooklyn many thanks to emily bierman senior vice president and global head of sotheby's photographs i'm hoping i can persuade her to come back for a discussion after our next auction as well I'll be posting links to the photographs we discussed in this episode on theexperteye.org, as well as results for the February auction of A Grand Vision, the David H. Arrington collection of Ansel Adams photographs. Until next time, remember to Google cautiously, blacklight judiciously, and do not handle prints under the influence of intoxicants.